Our Father, we thank you for this gospel song, this gospel message that you have proclaimed to us, a message that that you have spoken, that we have heard, that you have made us to respond to, a message that has saved us and is continuing to save us and will save us for all of eternity, a message that you have implanted in us so that we might be stewards of that message and proclaim that message to the nations. And Father, thank you that you have given us the privilege of going. We who are unworthy vessels, we who are ordinary and weak, have been endowed with this eternal treasure of the truth of Christ so that we might tell others, not just tell others here, but so that we might go across the oceans and declare this truth to those who have not heard. Father, would you transform us by this message and even this morning, would you give us hope in this message and would you give us confidence with this message, a confidence that will even lead us to going places where we have not considered going for the sake of the proclamation of the fame of His name. Father, would you make us bold and would you make us to be risk takers with the gospel for the spread of Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. When I was in college, I got a job working for a lumber supply company, and I worked in the showroom portion of that supply company, a place where we sold all kinds of things that were attendant to the supply of lumber. So we sold, of course, nuts and screws and drill bits and screwdrivers and all those kinds of things. And we also sold things like plumbing parts and electrical parts and paint supplies and cabinets and so on. And And I was woefully ignorant when I started that job. In fact, that would be something of an understatement. And um, we we had one particular customer who was known to be, at times, just a little bit cantankerous. And and when I left that job to, to move on to graduate school and seminary about a year later, he found out that I was leaving and um, and he came to see me and he said, I understand you're, you're, you're leaving to move elsewhere. And I said, yes, sir, I am. He said, well, you have come a long way. When you started, you didn't know anything. And now you're even sometimes helpful. And what helped me to become helpful was that I, I learned all the different kinds of systems that I was responsible to sell. So I learned how plumbing systems operated, and I learned how electrical systems operated, and I learned about cabinets, and I learned about paint. And so when people came in with various kinds of problems, I could point them to an appropriate solution, or if we didn't stock a solution, very often I was able to help them come up with something that would fit and, and, uh, and serve them in, in, in their repair need. Once I knew the purpose of the system, I could figure out a solution. And, and it's, it's that way with a lot of things in life, isn't it? Once we learn the design of a system, once we learn the, the purpose and intent of a, a particular entity, that we can come along and use it for its particular purpose, or we can, if it's broken, apply some kind of fix to it that, that will help it accomplish uh, what it needs to accomplish. And that's, that's true in the physical world. That's, that's true in the spiritual world. And, and it's even true as we think about missions. 
One reason that some churches struggle with missions is, frankly, because they don't understand the biblical teaching about missions and don't understand the biblical priorities and biblical responsibilities of missions. They don't understand the purpose for which missions has been given to us. But once we understand what what the Scriptures have to say about these things, making decisions about how we will involve ourselves in missions becomes much more clear. And this is what has been driving us over the last number of months as we've been thinking about on the Elder Board a a, a philosophy of missions and been crafting a a statement about what we believe about missions and how we're going to involve ourselves in missions and the kinds of missionaries with whom we want to affiliate ourselves. We, We needed clarity. Uh, so that we could make decisions that would be uh, most helpful to the body of Christ in the expansion of the name of Christ. We we wanted a document um, to guide us and develop, to guide us not only in, in choosing missionaries, but also to help us in developing missionaries. And frankly, just as kind of an aside, one of the things we would love to have happen that would come out of this is, is that we would see a generation and many in our body who are raised up that say, I want to go. This is the kind of task I want to involve myself in. I, I don't want to just stay here and, and do the kinds of ministry that I can do here, but I want to go there where, where others may not be serving and where I can maximize my spiritual gifting for the purpose of Christ and His name. We, we'd love for that to happen. And uh, we'd love to see that flourish and develop and grow. I said last week I'm excited about this series and excited about this document because GBC loves missions. And as I was thinking about that this week, I read again this sentence in a book about missions. The writer says, Churches won't extend themselves to commend the gospel and missions until they deeply cherish the gospel. And I said, that's why we love missions. Because this body loves the gospel. This body loves what the gospel does. This body loves how the gospel shapes people's lives, directs people's lives, transforms people's lives. And and because we love that, we love to see what it does overseas. And we want to see it continue to flourish overseas and and grow overseas. And and, and frankly, we want this document, this series, to expand this, this, this passion. Uh, just as we want to see the culture of evangelism grow in our church body, similarly, we'd love to see the the, 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 the culture of missions grow in this church body. And, and that's fitting because they're related, aren't they? Because evangelism is what we do locally, and missions is taking evangelism overseas, going going to another country um, with the, the ministry of the gospel and evangelism. So, so we want... We want evangelism to be much more part of our DNA, how we think and how we talk and how we function, and and we want missions to be the same part of our DNA and what we do and how we operate. As we think about missions, um, how do we define our purpose in missions? And you have the statement there on the top of the outline, the goal of Grace Bible Church Missions is to cultivate a network of missionaries that will expand our global involvement and see people from all the nations trust Christ, love Christ, and live for Christ's glory. We we want to see people from all over the world come to know Christ, love Christ, and live for Christ. Uh, That's simply our, our goal in missions. We want to take the gospel. And we want to take the gospel not just throughout 
Granberry, not just throughout Texas, not just throughout the United States. We want to take the gospel to other lands where they have not heard the truth about Jesus Christ, so they come to know Him and begin, become, begin to live for Him. Last week we asked a couple of questions. What is missions? And it has been striking to me over the years how very few churches actually define what missions is. And so we wanted to be careful to explain what missions is. And then we considered the question, why is missions so important? And this morning we want to continue and expand on those ideas and think about two further questions. What are our priorities in missions? And then secondly, what are our responsibilities in missions as it relates to the missionary? So what's the missionary responsibility? Next week we'll consider what is the church's responsibility in missions? So as we send missionaries, what are we saying to our missionaries? This is what we're going to do for you and this is how we're going to help you. So this morning, what are our priorities in missions? First question, what are our priorities in missions? What are the, what are the mission tasks that are most important to us? What are the mission tasks in which we want to engage ourselves? And as we think about that question, we we do well to remember that what we do in missions is guided by what we believe missions is. So as we answer the question, what's our priority, superimposed on that needs to be our theology and philosophy of what we believe missions is. So we took all that time last week to think about what missions is because what we believe missions is is going to guide and inform what we do in missions. And just by way of reminder, missions is gospel-focused. Missions is gospel-focused. So I I love the Great Commission as it's given in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 24, Jesus says to the disciples and the others who are gathered there, remember last week we said that it is very probable that it was the 500 from 1 Corinthians 15 that were also there. So it was a very large gathering, not just the the 11 uh, with Jesus, but it was a great number of believers with Jesus as He commands them with the Great Commission. Luke 24 says, He said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. A witnesses simply means you're a testimony. You're, you're to speak about. This is, this is your calling to talk about. What, and what you're to talk about specifically, he says, is about Jesus Christ. That Christ suffered, that Christ died, that Christ rose again from the dead the third day. So that Jesus, we talk about who Jesus Christ is, um, that He is the infinite God-man, and He came to earth, He took on Him the mantle of man's sin, He died for man's sin, and in man's place, suffering the, the, the death that man should have, because of man's sin, and then to demonstrate that he was a satisfactory sacrifice for that death, he rose again on the third day. And because of that, verse 47, if we repent, forgiveness of sins can be had. So we take the message about Jesus Christ and the fact that if we trust Him, He will forgive sins when we repent of those sins. That's our message. 
The message is about the gospel. The message is about the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And as we look at the early church, this is exactly what they've done. All through the New Testament, and particularly in the book of Acts, we just see repeatedly over and over and over the going forth of the message of the gospel about who Jesus Christ is and the need for repentance and forgiveness. So, for instance, Peter in Acts chapter 5, verse 31 He is the one, speaking about Jesus Christ, He is the one whom God exalted His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. So, forgiveness comes through Jesus Christ. Repentance is necessary for forgiveness. And it is our task to proclaim that and speak that truth. We find the same thing in Acts chapter 8. So when Philip comes across the man who is re- the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading Isaiah chapter 53, he asks him, what are you reading? And the Ethiopian tells him what he's reading. And then he says in verse 35, Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, Isaiah 53, he preached Jesus to him. So his singular message was Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, coming again, the means of forgiveness for those who repent. Find the same thing in in, uh, Paul's ministry. So immediately after he is converted to Christ, it says um, in verse 20 of Acts chapter 9, again, he's His name isn't Paul yet. He's still known as Saul. His name has changed a little bit later. Immediately, it says, 920, immediately after his conversion, he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, He is the Son of God. So immediately, he says, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the anticipated one who will fulfill the promises of God to the nation of Israel. Verse 22, Acts chapter 9. Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah. This Jesus is the one who was promised. This Jesus is the means and the only means for salvation. Find the same thing in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Peter, again, in his ministry, uh, he says, God raised up, verse 40, Acts 10, verse 40, God raised him, Jesus, up the third day, granted that he became visible, and he ordered us, verse 42, to preach to the people and to solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as the judge of the living and the dead. So this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the one who has given us forgiveness of sin, and this is the one who will also judge the sin of those who do not believe. See the same thing in Acts chapter 13, verse 38. Um, again, Paul this time, he says... Uh, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So all of these things remind us, and and we just see that pattern all the way through the book of Acts. There's just a continual preaching of the message of the gospel of Christ. Christ is the solution for man's needs. Man has sin. Man can do nothing about sin himself. Man cannot atone for sin himself. It takes a Savior, and Jesus Christ has come as a Savior to atone for man's sin. And that is the message that we carry. Missions is gospel-focused. You find the expansion into other countries, into new territories, and always it goes in the book of Acts with the clear gospel message. 
So missions is gospel-focused. Secondly, missions is cross-cultural. Missions is sending people to another culture to go with the gospel. In fact, we would just simply say going is inherent in missions. Missions doesn't stay. Missions goes. And we see that um, in Luke chapter 24, the Great Commission that we've already read. See it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, Jesus says to the disciples right before the ascension, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses, again, the, the testimony to who Christ is, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. So, so missions is about going and, and even going to the full extent of the world and the earth. We find the same thing in Acts chapter 13. Um, those who are sent, they set aside Paul and Barnabas. Uh, Acts 13, 2, verse 3, And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and they sent them away. And what's particularly interesting to notice here is that as you look at the book of Acts, it's not just that people just go and say, Well, I want to go to, I want to, go to, to this place, or I want to go to that place, and um, I want to go suffer for Jesus in Bermuda, taking the gospel to Bermuda, and maybe the Virgin Islands, and maybe Hawaii. Um, that's, not, that's not the way it works. But it's always the church that sends. It's always the church that, that decides and designs. It's the church that decrees where those who, are, who will go um, will go. And so, for instance, in Acts chapter 18, it's an, in a very compelling passage. It's, uh, it says in verse 27 of Acts 18, uh, Luke writes about Paul, when he wanted to go across to Achaia, so Paul Paul determines, I want to go, I want to take the gospel to Achaia. But does Paul, just, does Paul just get on a ship and go? No. Notice it says, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. So Paul says, I want to go to Achaia. And he evidently talks about that to the church. And the church says, yes, we believe that you should go to Achaia. And they not only said, go to Achaia, Paul, but then they also sent him a letter of authenticity saying that the church in Achaia should receive him. And then they send him on his way um, fit for service there in Achaia. And it's just a reminder that the church is the means by which people are sent. So Missions is cross-cultural, but it's not just cross-cultural by, well, I'm going to go where I want to go. It is cross-cultural in the sense that the church is strategically planning and designing and uh, preparing people to go into a cross-cultural ministry. And as we think about gospel being, uh, missions being gospel-focused, as we think about missions being cross-cultural, that also means that missions is not compassion ministry and mission is not social justice. Now, there is a place for compassion ministry. There is a place to be compassionate to those who have less than we do. There is a place to provide for those who are hungry and who need clothing and who need shelter. Um, and, and, and there's a place for individuals to do that. For instance, in, in Titus chapter 3, Paul writes to the young pastor in Crete. Um, he says, our people must learn also to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs 
so that they will not be unfruitful. In other words, it, it, it is the mark of a believer that he sees the pressing needs of people wherever he's living or wherever he's serving, and he sees this is a, this is a need for someone to express compassion and care and provide for the need of another, and he meets that need. And notice that Paul says, when doing so, he will not be unfruitful. In other words, that, that's the product of a fruitful life. You want to live a fruitful life? And engage yourself in, in caring for the needs of others. But, but that is distinct and that is different from the role of the church. So he says, verse 14, our people must learn to engage in good deeds. So it's, it's an individual responsibility of people within the church, but it is not the responsibility of the church as an entity to go with the gospel. In fact, as you read the New Testament, what you find repeatedly is that when the church goes, the church is always going with the gospel. People might attendantly provide for physical needs, but the primary responsibility of the church is to go with the gospel. The church, as an organism, doesn't mobilize itself to do missions for the purpose of offering temporal relief. And it's just helpful to remember, anyone can offer temporal relief. Anyone can offer physical help. But only the church comes with the gospel. So I like what one writer, as he's thinking about missions, says. Unbelievers... And NGOs don't preach the gospel and plant churches. Only the church does that. While the work of social action is emotionally rewarding for missionaries and for the churches that send them, I fear we'll wake up one day and realize that we've not been helping the world in the most helpful way. End quote. So, is there a need for clothing? Well, sure. Is there a need for food? Undoubtedly. Is there a need for shelter? Yes. Is that the most helpful way to help people? No, because the most significant need of an individual is to give them the gospel so that they don't spend eternity in hell. And so even as the Apostle Paul, as he's writing his great missionary letter, the book of Romans, as he's writing that letter and preparing to come to Rome, he says in Romans chapter 1, So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So I want to come to you, and the first thing I want to do is to preach the gospel. Were there those in Rome who could have used his physical help? Undoubtedly. But he wasn't interested in that. He was interested in the carrying out of the proclamation of the gospel. Why? Because he says in verse 16, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's only the gospel that will bring salvation. It's only the gospel that will bring transformation. Social helps and social justice don't bring those kinds of things. The gospel alone does. And so as we think about missions here at at Grace, everything we do in missions is going to be oriented towards going somewhere with gospel ministry to build up the church. We're interested in gospel ministry to build up the church. Now, as we think about missions, there are all kinds of options for cross-cultural ministry. We, we recognize that there have been historically many different ways that the church has attempted to do missions in, in other places. Uh, the, there are, for instance, traditional church ministries. 
like church planting and, and church ministry, the kinds of things that we do here uh, today and week in and week out. So there's worship and instruction and fellowship and evangelism. So there's outreach kinds of events that we do with uh, with evangelism and training people with the gospel so that they can be established in, in, in doing gospel in their neighborhood and at work and so on. There's, there's fellowship and exhortation that we have on a regular basis. There's, there's uh, discipleship and training with, with the gospel and living out of life. And, and, and we do that on multiple different levels here. And all that kind of stuff goes on overseas. And there's worship like we're doing this morning. And that takes place in the context of the church in the very same way overseas. I, I like what, what one writer has said, missions is simply of ecclesiology armed with a passport. Missions is simply what we believe about the church, and we get a passport, and we take what we believe about the church, and we take it to another distant land. That's traditional church ministry. Then there are other kinds of things that we can do alongside that. There are traditional support ministries, things, uh, uh, church support ministries. So things like Bible translation and theological education, evangelistic efforts uh, with the gospel, and all those things support and build up the church. So they're not directly the church but they are things that come alongside the church and make the church much more able to function and equipped to serve. Um, there are other things that we could do, like church logistical helps. And so over the years, I've had numerous people contact me and say, you know, we'd love for your church to support me. What are you going to do? Where are you going? And what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to to uh, Timbuktu, and I am going there to set up their office and run their computer systems. Well, is there a need for that? Undoubtedly, um, that there, there's a need for people to, to, to do computer systems and run offices and buy paper clips and all those kinds of things, but um, probably not the kind of thing that we want to be as deeply involved in. And there are other things, um, other ways to support missions as well and do missions. That's relief endeavors. So you find people doing this on a very regular basis. You probably get emails like this on a regular basis. People helping with food and water and education and housing and uh, clothing. And so they're going to alleviate human suffering uh, in distant lands. Those are what we may call relief endeavors. And then there's also social justice. So we're working within a cultural and political realm to a, attempt to right social wrongs and social injustices, things like abortion and slavery and sex trade and racial inequalities and, and doing all that in the name of uh, the gospel and in the name of missions. So there's lots of different things that we could be doing. Now, what are the things that we at Grace want to do? What are our priorities in missions? Because all of those things that I've just listed... Are, are things that, that have differing kinds of roles in attempting to build God's church. And a grace, what we want to do is prioritize our missionary efforts on ministries that will directly build the church of Christ. We want to, we want to be engaged in activities that will directly bring the gospel to people and equip people with the gospel so that they can grow in Christ in the context of the local church. And, and frankly, we believe in the priority of the local church because Christ said He would build His church. The, this one single entity that Christ left, the one single entity that Christ created was the church. And if Christ 
built the church, redeemed the church, lives to sanctify the church, and is waiting to to bring his church and his bride into glory, then, then the church similarly needs to be our priority as well. We, we affirm the statement, the mission of missions is primarily spiritual. And because the mission of missions is spiritual, our goal is to prioritize the allocation of our missionary resources to, to, to these kinds of ministries, to church planting and evangelism. We want to take the gospel. We want to, we want to see people equipped with the gospel. They go to another land and they share the gospel. They see people respond in faith to the gospel and they start a church as an outgrowth of those who respond to the gospel in faith. Um, we also want to engage ourselves in pastoring local churches and developing leadership within that church context. We, we believe in, in the building up of, of the local church and the establishment of the local church. And, and we love ministries that are doing those kinds of things. Um, and we love leadership development. Uh, theological education and and pastor and leader training. So we want we want guys who are going to go into other places and develop and train others who will be fit leaders and elders in the local church, equip them to 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 build up the body of Christ there. And we we love men who love the church. And and we want to do things as well. Uh, like Bible translation and resource uh, development. So there are places like in Papua New Guinea where the people don't have a copy of the Scriptures. Well, how will they know what the Bible says unless they have the Bible? And how will they have the Bible unless someone is sent to give them the Scriptures? And so we love investing in people like David Gibson who are going to... translate the scriptures and provide the scriptures and other resources eventually as well so that they can know what the scriptures teach. So we want we want guys who are invested in the church. We want guys who are going to train leaders. I love what Jack is doing in Cambodia. I've just frankly my heart was knit to Jack very quickly because because everything that Jack did was underneath the authority of the local church. He says, I don't want to do anything unless it has the support of the local church that is sending me. And then secondly, when I get over there, I want to, I want to invest in building up the local church. In fact, Jack's told me on numerous occasions, if I wanted to give rice to people and feed people, I could spend 50 hours a week doing that every single week I'm over there. But I'm not interested in doing that. What I need is to train another group of people who will lead the church in my absence when I'm gone. We, we love stuff like that. We, we believe in the priority of the local church, training believers to do the work of the ministry. And because of that, frankly, we're going to place a low priority on relief endeavors or working in roles that have no direct evangelistic or equipping emphases. Um, other places can do that. Other places do that. That's fine. Our priority is direct development of the local church. So that's, that's what our priorities are as we think about missions. And second, second question we want to answer today, what are the responsibilities of missionaries? What are the responsibilities of missionaries? As we think about, about those whom we're sending, what kind of people do we want to identify with to fulfill the purpose of missions at GBC? And as we think about this question, 
There are really two other questions that that drive the answer to that question, and that is, what should missionaries be? So as we think about the responsibility of missionaries, first of all, we want to think about the character of the individual. We want to think about what what the person is. What, what is the character of their lives? Are they godly? And as we think about their character, that begins with an evaluation of their internal desires, the focus of their lives and their hearts, and, and do they seek and pursue the glory of God? We, we frankly learned a really important lesson about this about 15 years ago. We were looking for an associate pastor at the time, and, and we kind of had our mindset about uh, the kind of the kind of position we wanted to fill, and so um, we had a job description lined out for the guy that we were wanting to hire, and and uh, the kinds of things that we wanted him to do. And then and then in the midst of that, we had somebody come and do an internship with us during the summer. And during the course of that internship, we began to fall in love with him, and he began to fall in love with us, and. And we began seeing that the issue is not, do you have the right job description? The issue is, do you have the right man? And what we, decide, what we figured out is, in that intern, a guy named Keith Palmer, we had the right man. We had the man of character. Now, he didn't exactly fit well with the job description, but man, he fit perfectly with our church. He, he, he bought into the philosophy of ministry. He, he fit our theology. He fit our understanding of the gospel. He, he fit everything we wanted to do. And so we said, that's the guy. Now we just need to figure out what he needs to do. And the Lord has been so gracious in, in, in honoring both him and us in that process of figuring out um, what Keith does and how he can serve us. That, that's the same thing as we think about missionaries. I'm not as interested in... What is the pragmatic task that they're going to do? I want to find out, is this man a man of character? Is this this man walking with Christ? Does he live for God's glory? Turn turn with me for just a moment to 3 John, shortest book in the Scriptures. 3 John. So, actually it might be the second or shortest. 2 John might be a hair shorter. Um, If you go to the back of the Bible, Revelation, then another short book, Jude, and then Third John. Third John, John is writing to an elder named Gaius. And Gaius and their church were sending out people with the gospel, um, sending out others out for missionary task. Notice verse 5, Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, those, those who came uh, with the testimony of the gospel and wanted to go out with the gospel. You are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers, and they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Notice this, verse 7, For they went out for the sake of the name. Why did they go and why did they serve and why did they pour themselves out for the purpose of Christ and why did they give up all the things that they gave up to accomplish missions? They, they did it for the sake of the name. Which name? Well, there is only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, right? There's only one name that is worthy of our worship. There's only one name that is worthy of our labors and work and it is the name of Jesus Christ. It is, it is not dissimilar when John says this to what 
What John also says um, that John the Baptist says in John chapter 3, he says, he, John the Baptist says, he must increase, Christ must increase, I must decrease. That's what, that's what these missionaries were doing in 3 John 7. They were going out for the sake of the name. They were going out for the exaltation of Christ. They're going out so that Christ is lifted up. They're going out so that Christ is honored. They're living out Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. It's all for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's all about His name. It's all about His exaltation and giving thanks through Him to God the Father. It's always about Him. That's the task of ministry. Not to draw attention to us, but to point people to the only one who is the Savior who is able to meet their needs for redemption. And as we look to identify ministries and missionaries, we want to ask the question, do they get the gospel right? Do they understand who Jesus Christ is? And is Jesus Christ first and preeminent in their lives? Are they the kind of people who say, I don't just agree with 1 Corinthians 10.31, I live 1 Corinthians 10.31. So then... Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. As you look at that individual's life, is it just permeated with he serves because of Christ. He wants Christ exalted. He wants Christ lifted up. We, we frankly, that means if, if, if you're choosing people that go out for the sake of the name, if you're choosing people who live for the glory of God, you are sending your best people. You're not sending a guy. You're sending your best man. You're sending the people who are most equipped, who are best equipped to go with the gospel elsewhere. And that's going to be a sacrifice on our part if we do that. And frankly, I, w- I, would love, I would love to have the problem in a few years where we're saying, w- we need to raise up more men because all of our best men, all, all of our best elders and all of our best elder qualified men have left and they're overseas and they're building and they're developing and they're maturing other churches. Wouldn't it be great to have the problem that all of our best elders are over there and we need more elders here? Uh, we we want to send our best people who go out for the sake of the name. And as we think about spiritual character, we recognize specifically that they're going to have to demonstrate spiritual character in keeping with the, the mission ministry in which they're going to be engaged. So those who are called to church leadership roles, like church planting and pastoring, are going to have to fill the, the responsibility of elders. They're going to have to fit the qualifications of elders. We want, we want elder qualified men. We want men who are just like elders or who are themselves elder qualified or maybe even elders already in the local church. We want those kinds of men to go. What kind of man am I talking about? Well, flip over to with me to Titus chapter 1 and just remind you of what, what kind of man we're looking for. Titus chapter 1. Interestingly enough, an, another missions context, another mission setting. So, so Paul had gone to Crete. He had taken with him Titus. Um, to establish the church in Crete. And notice he says, Titus 1.5, For this reason I left you in Crete. So we went to Crete for the purpose of the gospel on a missionary endeavor. And then Paul leaves Titus there. He says at the end of verse 5, so that he would appoint elders in all the churches that are, that are there in every city. And so he left Titus there on a missionary endeavor. And what kind of elders was was Titus to look for. And 
uh, verses 6 through 9 tell us the kind of elders that, that he should look for. And I'm going to group it around five different characteristics of eldership. First of all, verse 6, namely, if any man is above reproach. So as we think about elders, we think about those who are missionaries, particularly those who are going for the task of, of leading in the church. The overall quality of his life, the first characteristic is the overall quality of his life needs to be above reproach. So there's no legitimate charge that can be brought against him that would disqualify him from leadership. He is well known to have an unsullied rep- reputation. He, he is a, a, a faithful man, faithful to Christ. And no one can diminish that or, or accuse him. doesn't mean he's perfect, but it does mean that he walks uh, consistently, faithfully with Christ. You just look at the totality of his life and you say, that's a man of God. He's above reproach. And then second, second quality, in, also in verse 6, is the character of his family life. So the quality of his overall life and then the character of his family life. And so he says he is the husband of one wife, having children who, and I think a better translation than believe, my text says having children who believe, I think a better translation is who are faithful, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. So they are faithful children, And I think the word faithful is actually explained by the next two phrases. They are faithful. That is, they're not accused of dissipation, of wastefulness, or rebellion. So they are faithful, not necessarily to Christ. Ideally, they are faithful to Christ. They're obedient to Christ. They are believers in Christ. But but even more so, they are... They're faithful to follow the leadership of their father in his home. So even if they're not believers, they're not rebellious against him, but he is, he has them under control. He's guiding them and he's leading them on their pathway to Christ. He's also the husband of one wife. I take that to mean that he, he is not a divorced man, but it's far more than that. It's a man who, who leads his, his wife well. It is a, it is a man who has an exemplary marriage. It's, it's a man that you can look to in the body of Christ and say, that's the kind of marriage to have. Be like that man in his marriage. Follow his leadership. He has nurtured and cared for his wife in an exemplary way. So we look at the overall quality of his life. We look at the character of his family life. We, we look at the, at the nature of what he does not do. That's the third quality, verse 7. The nature of what he doesn't do. The overseer must, again, notice he says, the, the overseer must again be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. In other words, he, he doesn't live for himself. He's not prideful, he's not arrogant, and that is demonstrated in the fact that he's not argumentative, he's not combative, and he's not controlled by wine or money, as just two instances of the things that don't control him. He's not not characterized by a life that's out of control. His life is under control. That leads us to the fourth characteristic of of the elder, and that's given to us in verse 8. It is the nature of what he does. So we've looked at the quality of his life, the overall quality of his life, the character of his family life, what he doesn't do, and now verse 8, what he does do. He is hospitable, he is loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-control. That is, he, he cares for people, 
He's in control of his mind and emotions. And, and in summary, we could just say he's devout. He, he's holy. He's unstained by the world. He, he walks with Christ. And it is evident in the way he cares for those who are under his leadership. And then the, the, last, the last thing is given to us in verse 9. last characteristic is given in verse 9. He is sound in his teaching. He is sound in his teaching. He is holding fast, uh, Paul says in verse 9, the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. That word sound, sound doctrine, that word sound um, has, has the root of our word hygienic in it. It's healthy. He has healthy doctrine. It's, it's right doctrine. It's, it's profound doctrine. It's true doctrine. It's, it's true teaching. He is, he's sound in everything that he teaches. Now, as you look at that list, that is an extraordinary list. And in fact, I've, I've read that list, I couldn't tell you how many times. Dozens, probably hundreds of times I've read through that list. And I never read through that list without thinking, and who can attain to that? Because if you look at that list absolutely, you think there's only one man in this world who has ever attained to that list, and that's Jesus Christ. In an absolute sense, I I don't meet that list. In an absolute sense, I don't think I know any elder that has ever met that list. And yet, the way he writes that, there's an expectation that we will meet that list. So it's it's an attainable goal. It's, it's the kind of goal that a man can be, that this is, this is what the godly man in Christ should be. And in fact, in that sense, it's not an extraordinary list, it's a very ordinary list. Because the kinds of things that he lists here are all the things that the Spirit of God does in everyone who's a believer. This is what the Spirit of God does to change all of us so that we become like Jesus Christ. This is, this is, this is what every man should be. And so as we think about, about shepherding and as we think about um, missions work, we're thinking particularly about the kinds of guys, the kinds of men who are going to take the gospel overseas and they're going to be involved in developing the church overseas and they meet these kind of criteria and these kinds of qualities. Now, as soon as I say that, we recognize the fact that there are lots of people that are engaged in mission work that, that aren't directly involved in, in eldering and pastoring churches overseas. For instance, um, you think about, about women and how they have served the cause of missions for centuries, even from the beginning, of, beginning stages of the early church. So you read through the book of Acts and you keep finding this couple popping up in the books of, book of Acts. Priscilla and Aquila. What's interesting is even she's named before he is. And so she was integrally involved in the church. First they are in Rome. They get kicked out of Rome because of a decree by the emperor. They go to, to Corinth. And then eventually they end up back in Rome again. And they're, they're involved in gospel ministry. They're involved in, in, in building up the church. And this woman is, is integrally involved in that. Now, she obviously can't meet the criteria of an elder, right? Because she can't be the husband of one wife. And so she can't meet that criteria, and yet she fills a legitimate role in 
the carrying out of the gospel. And so we would say similarly, there are roles that women have in the church here, and we we love the roles that women play in the context of the local church here. All kinds of things that women do in discipling and training and teaching and equipping and evangelizing. And we love how our ladies at Grace Bible Church carry out their responsibilities and exercise their spiritual gifts for the glory of God in our context here. And we see them being able to do the very same things overseas. The same kinds of things they can do here, they can do over there. And and we want to send them and we want to equip them and we want to see them flourish overseas. What kind of women? I, I think Titus actually, Paul's letter to Titus gives us further instruction about the kind of women to look for. So Titus chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. And, and, and there he's talking about a chronological age. I'm sorry to tell you, ladies, um, it, it's about mid middle age. So in the, you know, the 40 to 45 range, he's calling you older women. I'm sorry, but that's, that's what he's doing. Older women, and he's talking about chronology, but, but isn't it true that he also could just be talking about maturity? That this is, this is what a mature woman looks like. This is when a woman reaches her older years, the back half of life. When she's on the back half of life, this is what she ought to look like. She ought to be mature in these ways. Reverent in their behavior. Not malicious gossips, controlled with their mouth. Not enslaved to much wine. Um, in control of the things they desire and what they do. Teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. You look at this woman's life and you say, God's Word is honored through her. That's the kind of woman that fits um, the characteristics of a missionary woman that we want to see go overseas with the gospel. Similarly, not all men that go overseas are going to fit the role of a pastor. And so from a technical sense, they don't need to be able to fulfill the qualifications of an elder. That's not what they're going to do overseas. There are all kinds of other roles in which they might engage themselves. And so they don't need the qualifications of an elder over there any more than they would over here. But I would say they need to be elder-like, that that they're moving that direction, that they're, they're going in that way. And in a similar way as... As Titus gives us understanding about what, what a mature woman looks like, he also tells us what a mature man ought to look like. So, verse 2 of chapter 2. Older men, again, he's talking about chronology, but again, it's about that, it's the latter half of life, right? So, 40 plus, sorry guys, if you're 40 or more, you're on the back half of life, you're an older man. And a mature man, he says, ought to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. And in fact, young men also ought to be moving towards Christ like this. Verse 6, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The opponent... Even those who are opposed to us can only look at our lives and say, we commend them. Um, that's, that's the kind of man that um, a follower of God ought to be. 
So as we look at, at the spiritual qualifications, spiritual characteristics of those who are sending, that those are the kinds of things that we want those kinds of people to be. We also want them to be exemplary in their marriages. We, we believe that um, particularly those who are going overseas ought to have um, husbands and wives in firm agreement and, and fitting well and carrying out their responsibilities in the home. And they ought to, that ought to particularly stand out in their family life. And then they also, because they're serving in a cross-cultural setting, they're working with people that they might not know otherwise. There's all kinds of potential for conflict. We want to see people who are well-equipped to handle conflict, to be reconcilers of conflict. Uh, I think about uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We urge you, brothers, verse 14, 1 Thessalonians 5.14, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. So the one who's going overseas, he understands how to work with all kinds of different people and can relate to them, even in difficulty, and he is patient with all people, patient with all men. And their love for others in the body of Christ ought to be a clear testimony of the power of Christ's gospel. And that's what a missionary should be, exemplary in their character. And what should a missionary do? What should a missionary do? They should, first of all, be prepared for ministry. So their their spiritual gifting should be equivalent to the missionary task to which they are called. So we ought to be able to go through a passage like Romans chapter 12 with them and identify what their spiritual gifts are and say, that's you and that fits to the ministry to which you want to go overseas. So uh, we read the spiritual gifts. Uh, for Romans chapter 12, verse 6, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us ought to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, in his serving. He who teaches, in his teaching. He who exhorts, in his exhortation. He who gives, with liberality. He who leads, with diligence. He who shows mercy, with cheerfulness. So whatever your gifting is, it ought to be obvious to us that that is your gift. So whether you're a server or a teacher or an exhorter or a giver or a leader or one who shows mercy, it ought to be evident that is your gift. And we identify it and say, not only is that your gift, but it fits well with the ministry to which you're going. Just an aside, and you know, this is this is how we know what our spiritual gifts are. We function in the body, and people in the body tell us, "Hey, I see you being particularly effective in this area, and so this must be uh, where your spiritual gift is." But I think we need to take the next step in that, and we ought to we ought to be approaching people and saying, "You know, the Lord seems to be." particularly effective in using you in this particular instance. We, we see extreme giftedness in this area. Have you ever considered what that gift might look like in an overseas context? Have you ever considered taking that gift and exporting it to the nations so that the nations will hear about the fame of Christ's name? And, and we ought to be encouraging people, compelling people, that their giftedness fits with mission work overseas. So they ought to be spiritually gifted. Then they ought to be adequately trained. So they're prepared for ministry because they have adequate training. It's, it's interesting to notice the disciples are with Jesus for three years before he cuts them loose. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul, after he's converted, uh, Galatians chapter 1 tells us that he was three years in Arabia and Damascus before he had any kind of public ministry. As we read First Timothy chapter 4, we realize that, that uh, Timothy, before he was ever established as a pastor at the, at the church in Ephesus, that he was, his hand, he was uh, laid on by hands by the elders and, and given gifting and prepared for service before he was put in that place. And, and, the, and the point is simply this, that before we sense someone to go. They've got to be equipped with the task. They've got to have training that is fitting with the task. Now, that doesn't mean everybody needs to go to Bible college and seminary, but it does mean that when they go overseas, that whatever it is that they're tasked to do, that they have ample and adequate training to accomplish the task that they are given. Along with that, we would say that they have to have an obvious and demonstrated love for the unregenerate. I love what Piper has said in his book, uh, Let the Nations Be Glad. He says, missions exists because worship doesn't. People, people need the gospel because they're not worshipers of Christ. And we go with the gospel to other nations because people don't love Jesus Christ. And we want to hear, see them converted to Christ and become lovers of Christ. And that's why we do missions. And we want, we want that kind of sentence, missions exist because worship doesn't, to resonate with the heart of those who we're sending. We want people to be passionate for evangelism. We want people who are sold out for communicating the gospel to others so that they become worshipers of Jesus Christ. They might not have the spiritual gift of evangelism, but they are confident and competent and passionate evangelists. And they affirm what Tim Keller has said, evangelism is the most basic and radical ministry possible to the human being. And along with that, they're, they're affiliated with a local church. They're, so they're not operating on their own. Remember, we've, we've, we've made particular emphasis over the last couple of weeks that the one who goes is not the one who goes on his own. He is the one who is sent. No one decides on his own, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go as a missionary to Africa, or I'm gonna go on a mis- as a missionary to Cambodia, or I'm gonna go as a missionary to Papua New Guinea. But that is done within the context of the local church. One of our core values here is, is what we call every member ministry. So every member has a spiritual gift and every member uses that spiritual gift for the development and furtherance of, of the church and involved in the context of the local church. And that, that goes true for the missionary as well. So while he is here, before he is sent, he's involved and he's immersed in the context of the local church and, and he's serving and he's developing and, and he's ministering. And then when he gets to where he's going, What's the first thing he does? He plugs into the local church. He immerses himself in the local church. I like what we have said in our document. We cannot conceive of a missionary who is disconnected from the local church, either at home or abroad. Wherever he is, here or there, he's involved in the local church. And we we see this as well in, um, in John's letter to Gaius. In Third John, he says in verse 8, and we'll spend more time on this next week, he says, therefore, we ought, to, we ought to support such men, men who went out for the sake of the name, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. And so there's a, con- there, there's a sense in which, well, the missionary goes, and they're really doing the task, and we're all on the same team, but they're, they're at a different level than I am. Now, no, no, John says, no, we are fellow workers with them. So, so it's as if while they are there, if we have given to that, it's, it's as if we are alongside them. 
doing the same task of the ministry with them in their place and in their location. So, so we send David and we send Jack and we send other people and, and it's as if we're right there in Papua New Guinea in, in that hut eating that taro root. Is that what it is? And we're swatting mosquitoes. I wish we could see the same sight out of the window that you see um, on that beach. But we're, we're right there. It's not, that, it's not that David goes. No. Brothers, we go with him. We are fellow workers. We are united. We are tied to him in an essential connection with him. We are bound together as co-laborers with him. And what happens? What happens when people remember their priorities? What happens when people remember their responsibilities in missions? Historian and theologian Nathan Busnitz has noted the progression of gospel through missions from the 16th century until today. Listen, listen how he traces the gospel directly through missions. John Eliot was a Puritan settler in New England, born in 1604, who began evangelizing Native Americans. He was known as as the Apostle to the Indians and translated the Bible into their native language, and he helped establish churches and sparked a missionary zeal among Christian settlers in the New World. And one of those people that was sparked to missionary endeavor directly through John Eliot's influence and writing is a man named David Brainerd who devoted his life also to reaching Native Americans with the good news of the gospel. Brainerd died very young. He died at 29 of tuberculosis. But he had a friend, a guy you may have heard of, a guy named David, excuse me, a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who was so impressed with David Brainerd that Edwards wrote a biography and published the diary of David Brainerd. That biography that was written by Edwards, an account of the life of the late Reverend David Brainerd, that account written by Edwards was read in 1785 by a shoe cobbler named uh, William Carey. That book had such a profound influence on Carey's life that he went with the gospel to India, um, initiating what we call the modern missions movement. In 1802, following Carey, a a British preacher named Charles Simeon was speaking about the good things that Carey was doing in India. And hearing that message, a young man in the congregation named William Martin determined that he also would go to India rather than to law school. Now, Martin, likewise, did not live to be a long time, but his, live a long life, but his memoirs influenced many in England, particularly his biography that had a profound impact on a man named Anthony Groves, who was considered by some to be the father of faith missions. Groves published a, a little booklet entitled Christian Devotedness, in which he encouraged Christians to live frugally so that they could give abundantly to missions. That little booklet profoundly influenced George Mueller and Hudson Taylor and shaped the way they thought about missions. Hudson Taylor was the first missionary to go into the interior of China. He established China Inland Mission. Hundreds of missionaries followed him into the interior of China. 
He, on one occasion, returned to England and encouraged Christian young people to join him in China. And a famous Cambridge cricket player named C.T. Studd was among those who heard that message. And he committed to giving up his life of leisure so that he could give his cause, his life for the cause of the gospel in China. And he, along with six others, went to China. They became known as the Cambridge Seven, who went to China following Hudson Taylor. And that, that knowledge about what the Cambridge Seven did and their, their, um, fame for giving up things for the gospel of Christ stimulated what became known as the student volunteer movement for foreign missions in North America. And that developed under the leadership of men like D.L. Moody and A.T. Pearson, the, the biographer of, of uh, Mueller, actually. And hundreds of American students joined that volunteer movement and committed themselves to the work of foreign missions. The testimony of Taylor was also particularly influential in the lives of later missionaries like Amy Carmichael, Eric Liddell, and Jim Elliott. And so there we have the history of God using people who took seriously their priorities of missions and their responsibility in missions over the course of 350 years from one Elliot to another, from John Elliot to Jim Elliot. And then from where has that gone? And this, this is what we see, God being faithful to use men who are committed to the biblical priorities and responsibilities of missions. What happens? When men are faithful to it, God's church grows. And brothers and sisters, may we be just as faithful to this missionary cause. Our Father, we thank you for how you have protected your church and kept your church and developed your church and expanded your church even to the nations. We are thankful, Father, that the gospel has gone to the nations in missionary endeavor because that has meant our salvation. And because we are of the nations to which the gospel came so that we might be saved. And Father, having received that gospel, would you now use us to be takers of that gospel to other places as well so that the fame of the name of Christ would expand. We pray this in His name and for His glory. Amen.